Section 13 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. The Earth Hath Bubbles. One of the comedies of Ben Jonson gives some vivid and humorous illustrations of the mania for projects, speculations, patents, and monopolies that at his time had taken possession of the minds of Englishmen. There is an enterprising person who declares that he can coin money out of cobwebs, raise wool upon eggshells, and make grass grow out of marrow bones. He has a project for the recovery of drowned land a scheme for a new patent for the dressing of dogskins for gloves, a plan for the bottling of ale, a device for making wine out of blackberries, and various other schemes cut and dry for what would now be called floating companies to make money. The civilized world is visited with this epidemic of project and speculation from time to time. In the reign of George I, such a mania attacked England much more fiercely than it had done even in the days of ben jonson it came to us this time from france the close of a great war is always a tempting and a favourable time for such enterprises finances are out of order a season of spurious commercial activity has come to an end new resources are to be sought for somehow and man must change to be other than he is when he wholly ceases to believe in financial miracle working there is an air of plausibility about most of the new projects and indeed like the scheme told us in ben jonson for the recovery of drowned lands the enterprise is usually something within human power to accomplish if only human skill could make it pay the exchequer of france had been brought into a condition of something very like bankruptcy by the long and wasting war and a projector was found who promised to supply the deficiency as boldly and as liberally as mephistopheles does in the second part of faust john law a scotchman and unquestionably a man of great ability and financial skill had settled in france in consequence of having fought a duel and killed a man in his own country law set up a company which was to have a monopoly of the trade of the whole mississippi region in north america and on condition of the monopoly was to pay off the national debt of france a scheme of the kind within due limitations would have been reasonable enough so long as the working of the mississippi region was concerned but law went on extending and extending the scope of its supposed operations until it might almost as well have attempted to fold in the orb of the earth the shares in his company went up with a sudden bound he had the patronage of the regent and of all the court circle gambling in shares became the fashion the passion of paris and indeed of all france shares bought one day were sold at an immense advance the next or even the same day men and women nearly bankrupt in purse before suddenly found themselves in possession of large sums of money for which they had to all appearance run no risk and made no sacrifice whatever princes and tradesmen duchesses and sempstresses and harlots clamoured in intrigue and battled for shares the offices in the rue quincampoix a street then inhabited by bankers stockbrokers and exchange agents were besieged all day long with crowds of eager competitors for shares 
the street was choked with fine equipages until it was found absolutely necessary to close it against all horses and carriages all the rank and fashion of paris flung themselves into this game of speculation every one has heard the story of the hunchback who made a little fortune by the letting of his hump as a desk on which impatient speculators might scribble their applications for shares a french novelist m paul feval has made good use of this story and london still remembers to what a brilliant dramatic account it was turned by mr fechter law was the most powerful and the most courted man of his day in his youth he had been a gallant and a free liver a man of dress and fashion and intrigue who delighted in scandalous entanglements with women the fashion and beauty of paris was for the hour at his feet think of a brilliant gallant who could make one rich in a moment the mother of the regent described in a coarse and pungent sentence the sort of homage which parisian ladies would have been willing to pay to law if he had so desired saint-simon the mere littérature and diplomatist kept his head almost alone and was not to be dazzled since the fable of midas he said he had not heard of any one having the power to turn all he touched into gold and he did not believe that virtue was given to monsieur law there is no doubt that law was a man of great ability as a financier and that his scheme in the beginning had promise in it it was as burke has said of the scheme and its author the public enthusiasm and not law himself which chose to build on the base of his scheme a structure which it could not bear it does not seem by any means certain that a project quite as wild might not be launched in london or paris at the present day and find almost as great a temporary success and blaze like laws the comet of a season while the season lasted the comet blazed with a light that filled the social sky law was for the time the most powerful man in france a momentary whisper that he was out of health sent the funds down and eclipsed the gaiety of nations he was admitted into the regent's privy council and made controller-general of the finances of france the result was inevitable there was as yet nothing behind the promises and the shares of the mississippi company if finance could have gone on for ever promise crammed things would have been all right but you cannot feed capons so as hamlet told us and you cannot long feed shareholders so law's scheme suddenly collapsed one day and brought ruin on hundreds of thousands in france while however it was still afloat in air its gaudy colours dazzled the eyes of the south sea company in england at the northwest end of threadneedle street within view of the remains of richard the third's palace of crosby stands a solid red brick building substantial respectable business-like dignified with the dignity of some century and a half of existence time has softened and deepened its ruddy hue to a mellow rich tone contrasting pleasantly with the white copings and facings of its windows and suggesting agreeably something of the smooth brown cloth and neat white linen of a well-to-do city gentleman of the last century yet that solemn massive prosperous-looking building is the enduring monument of one of the most gigantic shams on record a sham and a swindle that was the prolific parent of a whole brood of shams and swindles 
for that building with honesty and credit and mercantile honor written on its every line and angle is all that remains of the south sea house it is a melancholy place the hall of the kings at karnak is hardly more melancholy or more ghost-haunted not that the house has now that desolation something like balclutha's which charles lamb attributed to it more than half a century ago the place has changed greatly since elia the italian and elia the englishman were fellow-clerks at the south sea house those dusty maps of mexico dim as dreams have long been taken away the company itself having outlived alike its fame and its infamy lingering inappropriately like some guest that hath outstayed his welcome time was wound up at last within the memory of living men the stately gateway no longer opens upon the grave court with cloisters and pillars where south sea stock so often changed hands the cloisters and pillars have gone the court has been converted into a hall of a sort of exchange where merchants daily meet the days of the desolation of the south sea house are as much a thing of its past as its earlier splendor its corridors are now crowded with offices occupied by merchants of every nationality from scotland to greece and by companies connected with every portion of the globe only at night on saturday afternoons and during the still peace of a city sabbath do the noise of men and the stir of business cease in the south sea house yet nevertheless when one thinks of all that has happened there of the dreams and hopes and miseries of which it was the begetter it remains one of the most melancholy temples to folly that man has yet erected the south sea company had been established in seventeen ten by harley himself and was going along quietly and soberly enough for the time but the example of the mississippi company was too strong for it the south sea company too made to itself waxen wings and prepared to fly above the clouds the directors offered to relieve the state of its debt on condition of obtaining a monopoly of the south sea trade the nation was to take shares in the company in the first instance and to deal with the company for its commercial and other wares in the second and by means of the exclusive dealing in shares and in products it was to pay off the national debt in other words three men all having nothing and heavily in debt were to go into exclusive dealings with each other and were thus to make fortunes discharge their liabilities and live in luxury for the rest of their days stated thus the proposition looks marvellously absurd but it is not in its essential conditions more absurd than many a financial project which floats successfully for a time money-making the hardest and most practical of all occupations the task which can soonest be tested by results is the business of all others in which men are most easily led astray most greedy to be led astray sydney smith speaks of a certain french lady whose whole nature cried out for her seduction there are seasons when the whole nature of man seems to cry out for his financial seduction the south sea project expanded and inflated as the mississippi scheme had done its temporary success turned the heads of the whole population hundreds of schemes still more wild sprang into sudden existence some of the projects then put forward and believed in surpass in senseless extravagance anything satirized by ben jonson 
so wild was the passion for new enterprises that it seemed as if at one time anybody had only to announce any scheme however preposterous in order to find people competing for shares in it the only condition of things in our own time that can be compared with this epoch of insane speculation is the railway mania of eighteen forty six when for a brief season george hudson was king and set his hat in the market-place and all england bowed down in homage to it but the epidemic of speculation in the reign of the railway king was comparatively harmless and reasonable when compared with the midsummer madness of the south sea scheme the south sea scheme was brought before the notice of the house of commons in seventeen twenty the chancellor of the exchequer was mr aylaby we have already seen mr aylaby as one of the secret committee who recommended the impeachment of oxford and bolingbroke how well he was fitted for his office will appear from the fact that he was altogether taken in by the project and by the financial arguments of those who brought it forward sunderland and stanhope were taken in likewise but there was nothing very surprising in that a statesman of those days did not profess to understand anything about finance or economics unless these subjects happened to belong to his department and the statesman was exceptional who could honestly profess to understand them even when they did walpole however was a minister of a different order he was the first of the line of statesmen financiers he saw through the bubble and endeavoured to make others see as clearly as he did himself walpole assailed the project in a pamphlet and opposed it strenuously in his place in parliament he was not at that time a minister of the crown perhaps if he had been the south sea bill might never have been presented in parliament but the nation and the parliament were off their heads just then the caricaturists and the authors of lampoon verses positively found out the south sea scheme before the financiers and men of the city on january twenty second seventeen twenty the house of commons sitting in what was then termed a grand committee or what would now be called committee of the whole house took into consideration a proposal of the south sea company toward the redemption of the public debts the proposal set forth that quote, the corporation of the government and company of merchants of great britain trading to the south sea and other parts of america and for encouraging the fishery having under their consideration how they may be most serviceable to his majesty and his government and to show their zeal and readiness to concur in the great and honourable design of reducing the national debt do humbly apprehend that if the public debts and annuities mentioned in the annexed estimate were taken into and made part of the capital stock of the said company it would greatly contribute to that most desirable end, end quote. the company then set forth the conditions under which they proposed to convert themselves into an agency for paying off the national debt and making a profit for themselves the proposal fell somewhat short of the general expectation which looked for nothing less than a sort of financial philosopher's stone besides the bank of england was willing to compete with the south sea company if the company could coin money out of cobwebs why should not the bank be able to accomplish the same feat the friends of the bank reminded the house of commons of the great services 
which that corporation had rendered to the government in the most difficult times and urged with much show of justice that if any advantage was to be made by public bargains the bank should be preferred before a company that had never done anything for the nation well might Aylaby, the unfortunate chancellor of the exchequer whose shame and ruin we shall soon come to tell of exclaim in the speech which he made when defending himself for the second time before the house of lords that the spirit of bubbling had prevailed so universally that the very bank became a bubble in this not by chance or necessity or from any engagement to raise money for the public service but from the same spirit that actuated temple mills and garraway's fishery in plain truth as poor aylaby pointed out the bank started a scheme in imitation of the south sea company and the house of commons gave time for its proper development the bank offered its scheme on february first and by that time the South Sea Company had seen their way to mend their hand and submit more attractive proposals. Then the bank, not to be outrivaled, soon made a second proposal as well. The House took the rival propositions into consideration, and Walpole was the chief advocate of the bank. No doubt he had come to the reasonable conclusion that if there could be any hope of success for such a scheme, it would be found in the bank of england rather than in the south sea company mr aylaby the chancellor of the exchequer made himself the champion of the company and assured the house that its propositions were of far greater advantage to the country than those of the bank under his persuasive influence the house agreed to accept the tender as we may call it of the company and the chancellor of the exchequer mr secretary craggs and others were ordered to prepare and bring in a bill to give legislative sanction to the scheme the bill passed the commons and went up to the house of lords to the credit of the peers it has to be said that they received it more doubtfully and were slower to admit the certainty of its blessings than the members of the representative chamber had been lord north and grey condemned it as not only making way for but actually countenancing and authorizing the fraudulent and pernicious practice of stock jobbing the duke of wharton declared that the artificial and prodigious rise of the south sea stock was a dangerous bait which might decoy many unwary people to their ruin and allure them by a false prospect of gain to part with what they had got by their labour and industry to purchase imaginary riches lord cowper said that the bill like the trojan horse was ushered in and received with great pomp and acclamations of joy but was contrived for treachery and destruction lord sunderland however spoke warmly in favour of the bill and contended that they who countenanced the scheme of the south sea company had nothing in their view but the easing the nation of part of that heavy load of debt it laboured under and argued that the scheme would enable the directors of the company at once to pay off the debt and to secure large dividends to their shareholders the lords decided on admitting the south sea company's trojan horse eighty-three votes were in favour of the bill and only seventeen against it the bill was read a third time on april seventh and received the royal assent on june eleventh the king's speech delivered that day at the close of the session declared that 
the good foundation you have prepared this session for the payment of the national debts and the discharge of a great part of them without the least violation of the public faith will i hope strengthen more and more the union i desire to see among all my subjects and make our friendship yet more valuable to all foreign powers the immediate result of the parliamentary authority thus given to what was purely a bubble scheme was to bring upon the legislature a perfect deluge of petitions from all manner of projectors patents and monopolies were sought for the carrying on of fisheries in greenland and various other regions for the growth manufacture and sale of hemp flax and cotton for the making of sailcloth for a general insurance against fire for the planting and rearing of matter to be used by dyers for the preparing and curing of virginia tobacco for snuff and making it into the same within all his majesty's dominions schemes such as these were comparatively reasonable but there were others of a different kind petitions were gravely submitted to parliament praying for patents to be granted to the projectors of enterprises for trading in hair for the universal supply of funerals to all parts of great britain for insuring and increasing children's fortunes for insuring masters and mistresses against losses from the carelessness or misconduct of servants for insuring against thefts and robberies for extracting silver from lead for the transmutation of silver into malleable fine metal for buying and fitting out ships to suppress pirates for a wheel for perpetual motion and with which project perhaps we may close our list of specimens for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage but nobody to know what it is of course some of these projects were mere vulgar swindles even in that season of marvellous projection it is not to be supposed that the inventors of the last-mentioned scheme had any serious belief in its efficacy the author of the project for the perpetual motion wheel was we take it a sincere personage and enthusiast his scheme has been coming up again and again before the world since his time and we have known good men who would have staked all they held dear in life upon the possibility of its realization but the would-be patentee of the undertaking of great advantage nobody to know what it is was a man of a different order he understood human nature in certain of its moods he knew that there were men and women who can be got to believe in anything which holds out the promise of quick and easy gain if he found a few dozen greedy and selfish fools to help his project with a little money that would no doubt be the full attainment of his ends probably he was successful the very boldness of his avowal of secrecy would have a charm for many one day would be enough for him the day when he sent in his demand for a patent the bare demand would bring him dupes the first great blow struck at the south sea company came from the south sea company itself several bubble companies began to imitate the financial system which the more favoured institution had set up the south sea company put in motion certain legal proceedings against some of the offenders the south sea company had the support and countenance of the high legal authorities and found no difficulty in obtaining injunctions against the other associations directing them not to go beyond the strict legal privileges secured to them by their charters of incorporation 
Among the undertakings thus admonished were the English Copper Company and the Welsh Copper and Lead Company. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, happened to be a governor of the English Copper Company, and the Lord's Justices were polite enough to send the Prince a message expressing the great regret they felt at having to declare illegal an enterprise with which he was connected. The Prince, not to be outdone in politeness, received the admonition, we are told, very graciously, and sent on his part a message to the company requesting them to accept his resignation and to elect someone else a governor in his place. The proceedings which the South Sea Company had set on motion against their audacious rivals and imitators had, however, the inconvenient effect of directing too much of public attention to the principles upon which they conducted their own business. Confidence began to waver, to be shaken, to give way altogether, and when people ask whether a speculation is a bubble, the bubble, if it is one, is already burst. The whole basis of Law's system, and of the South Sea schemes as well, was the principle that the prosperity of a nation is increased in proportion to the quantity of money in circulation, and that as no state can have gold enough for all its commercial transactions, paper money may be issued to an unlimited extent and its full value maintained without its being convertible at pleasure into hard cash. This supposed principle has been proved again and again to be a mere fallacy and paradox, but it always finds enthusiastic believers who have plausible arguments in its support. It appears, indeed, to have a singular fascination for some persons in all times and communities. It might seem an obvious truism that under no possible conditions can people in general be got to give as much for a promise to pay as for a certain and instant payment, and yet this truism would have to be proved of falsehood in order to establish a basis for such a project as that of law. Even were the basis to be established, the project would then have to be worked fairly and honestly out, which was not done either in the case of the Mississippi Company or of the South Sea Company. If each had been founded on a true financial principle, each was worked in a false and fraudulent way. At its best, the South Sea Company, in its later development, would have been a bubble. Worked as it actually was, it proved to be a swindle. A committee of secrecy was appointed by the House of Commons to inquire into the condition of the company. The committee found that false and fictitious entries had been made in the company's books, that leaves had been torn out, that some books had been destroyed altogether, and that others had been carried off and secreted. The vulgar arts of the card-sharper and the thimble-rigger had been prodigally employed to avert detection and ruin by the directors of a company which was promoted and protected by ministers of state and by the favorites of the king. Some idea of the widespread nature of the disaster which was inflicted by the wreck of the company may be formed from a rapid glance at some of the petitions for redress and relief which were presented to the House of Commons. We find among them petitions for the counties of Hereford, Dorset, Essex, Buckinghamshire, Derby, the cities of Bristol, Exeter, Lincoln, 
the boroughs of Oakhampton, Amersham, Bedford, Chipping, Wickham, Abingdon, Sudbury, East Retford, Evesham, Newark-upon-Trent, Newbury, and many other places. We have purposely omitted to take account of any of the London communities. The wildest excitement prevailed, and it is characteristic of the time to note that the national calamity, for it was no less, aroused fresh hopes in the minds of the Jacobites. Such a calamity, such a scandal, it was thought, could not but bring shame and ruin upon the Whig ministers and through them discredit on the sovereign and the court. It was believed, it was hoped, that Sunderland would be found to be implicated in the swindle. Why should not such a crisis, such a humiliation to the Whigs, be the occasion of a new and more successful attempt on the part of the Jacobites? The king was again in Hanover. He was summoned home in hot haste. On December 8, 1720, the two houses of Parliament were assembled to hear the reading of the royal speech proroguing the session, and in the speech of the king was made to express his concern for the unhappy turn of affairs which has so much affected the public credit at home, and to recommend most earnestly to the House of Commons that you consider of the most effectual and speedy methods to restore the national credit and fix it upon a lasting foundation. You will, I doubt not, the speech went on to say, be assisted in so commendable and necessary a work by every man that loves his country. A week or so before the royal speech was read, on November 30th, 1720, Charles Edward, eldest son of James Stuart, was born at Rome. The undaunted medal of Atterbury came into fresh and vigorous activity with the birth of the Stuart heir and the apparent imminent ruin of the Whig ministers. Robert Walpole had been spending some time peacefully at his country place, Houghton, in Norfolk. Hunting, bull-baiting, and drinking were the principal amusements with which Walpole entertained his guests there. Sometimes the guests were persons of royal rank. Walpole once entertained the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Sometimes the throng of his visitors and his neighbors to the hunting field could only be compared, says the letter-writer at the time, to an army in its march. Walpole never lost sight, however, of what was going on in the metropolis. He used to send a trusty Norfolk man, as his express messenger, to run all the way on foot from Houghton to London and carry letters for him to confidential friends and bring him back the answers. When he found how badly things were going in London on the bursting of the South Sea bubble, he hastened up to town. His presence was sadly needed there. It is not without interest to think of James Stewart in Rome and Walpole in Houghton, both keeping their eyes fixed on the gradual exposure of the South Sea swindle, and both alike hoping to find their account in the national calamity. All the advantage was with the statesman, and not with the prince. The English people, of all opinions and creeds, were tolerably well assured that if anyone could help them out of the difficulty, Walpole could, and it required the faith of the most devoted Jacobite to make any man of business believe that the return of the exiled Stuarts could do much to keep off national bankruptcy. Walpole had waited long. His time was now come at last. Walpole had kept his head cool during the days when the company was soaring to the skies. He kept his head equally cool when it came down with a crash. 
he had never he said in the house of commons approved of the south sea scheme and was sensible it had done a great deal of mischief but since it could not be undone he thought it the duty of all good men to give their helping hand towards retrieving it and with this view he had already bestowed some thoughts on a proposal to restore public credit which at the proper time he would submit to the wisdom of the house walpole had made money by the south sea scheme the sound knowledge of the principles of finance which enabled him to see that the enterprise thus conducted could not pay in the end enabled him also to see that it could pay up to a certain point and when that point had been reached he quietly sold out and saved his gains the king's mistresses and their relatives also made good profit out of the transactions the prince of wales was a gainer of some of the season's speculations but when the crash came the ruin was widespread it amounted to the proportions of a national calamity the ruling classes raged and stormed against the vile conspirators who had disappointed them in their expectations of coining money out of cobwebs the lords and commons held inquiries and passed resolutions demanding impeachments it was soon made manifest beyond all doubt that members of the government had been scandalously implicated in the worst parts of the fraudulent speculations mr aylaby the chancellor of the exchequer was only too clearly shown to be one of the leading delinquents mr craggs the father postmaster-general and james craggs the son secretary of state were likewise involved both were remarkable men the father had begun life as a common barber and partly by capacity and partly by the thrift that follows fawning had made his way up in the world until he reached the height from which he was suddenly and so ignominiously to fall it was hardly worth the trouble thus to toil and push and climb only to tumble down with such shame and ruin craggs the father had had great transfers of south sea stock made to him for which he never paid craggs the son the secretary of state had acted as the go-between in the transactions of the company with the king's mistresses whereby the influence of these ladies was purchased for a handsome consideration charles stanhope one of the secretaries to the treasury and cousin of the minister was shown to have received large value in the stock of the company for which he never paid the most ghastly ruin fell on some of these men craggs the younger died suddenly on the very day when the report incriminating him was read in the house of commons craggs the father poisoned himself a few days afterwards pope wrote an epitaph on the son in which he described him as statesman yet friend of truth of soul sincere in action faithful and in honour clear who broke no promise served no private end who gained no title and who lost no friend epitaphs seem to have been genuine tributes of personal friendship in those days they had no reference to merit or to truth one's friend had every virtue because he was one's friend secret committees might condemn parliament might degrade juries might convict impartial history might stigmatize but one's friend remains one's friend all the same and if one had the gift of verse was to be held up to the admiration of time and eternity in a glorifying epitaph we have fallen on more prosaic days now the living admirer of a modern craggs would leave his epitaph unwritten if he could not make facts and feelings fit better in together 
a better and more eminent man than Aylaby or either Craggs lost his life in consequence of the South Sea calamity. No one had accused or even suspected Lord Stanhope of any share in the financial swindle. Even the fact that his cousin was one of those accused of guilty complicity with it did not induce anyone to believe that the Minister of State had any share in the guilt. Yet Stanhope was one of the first victims of the crisis. The Duke of Wharton, son of the late minister, had just come of age. He was already renowned as a brilliant, audacious profligate. He was president of the Hellfire Club. He and some of his comrades were the nightly terror of London streets. Wharton thought fit to make himself the champion of public purity in the debates on the South Sea Company's ruin. He attacked the ministers fiercely. He attacked Stanhope in especial. Stanhope replied to him with far greater warmth than the weight of any attack from Wharton would seem to have called for. Excited beyond measure, Stanhope burst a blood vessel in his anger. He was carried home and died the next day, February 5, 1721. His life had been pure and noble. He was a sincere lover of his country, a brave and often a successful soldier, a statesman of high purpose, if not of the most commanding talents. His career as a soldier was brought to a close when he had to capitulate to that master of war and profligacy, the Duke de Vendôme, an encounter of a different kind with another brilliant profligate robbed him of his life. The House of Commons promptly passed a series of resolutions declaring John A. Libby, Esquire, a member of this House, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, and one of the Commissioners of His Majesty's Treasury, guilty of most notorious, dangerous, and infamous corruption, in ordering his expulsion from the House and his committal as a prisoner to the Tower. This resolution was carried without a dissentient word. The House of Commons went on next to consider the part of the report which applied to Lord Sunderland, and a motion was made declaring that, after the proposals of the South Sea Company were accepted by this House, and a bill ordered to be brought in thereupon, and before such bill passed, fifty thousand pounds of the capital stock of the South Sea Company was taken in by Robert Knight, late cashier of the said company, for the use and upon the account of Charles Earl of Sunderland, a Lord of Parliament and First Commissioner of the Treasury, without any valuable consideration paid or sufficient security given for payment for or acceptance of the same. Sunderland had too many friends, however, and too much influence to be dealt with as if he were Aylaby. A fierce debate sprang up. The evidence against him was not by any means so clear as in the case of Aylaby. There was room for doubt as to Sunderland's personal knowledge of all that had been done in his name. His influence and power secured him the full benefit of the doubt. The motion implicating him was rejected by a majority of 233 votes against 172, which, however, says a contemporary account, occasioned various reasonings and reflections. Charles Stanhope, too, was lucky enough to get off on a division by a very narrow majority. A letter from an English traveller at Rome to his father, bearing date May 6, 1721, and privately printed this year, 1884, for the first time, 
under the auspices of the clarendon society of edinburgh gives an interesting account of the reception of the writer an english protestant by james stuart and his wife that part of the letter which is of present interest to us tells of the remarks made by james on the subject of the south sea catastrophe james spoke of the investigations of the secret committee from which he had no great hope for he said the authors of the calamity would find means to be above the common course of justice some may imagine continued he that these calamities are not displeasing to me because they may in some measure turn to my advantage i renounce all such unworthy thoughts the love of my country is the first principle of my worldly wishes and my heart bleeds to see so brave and honest a people distressed and misled by a few wicked men and plunged into miseries almost irretrievable thereupon says the writer of the letter he rose briskly from his chair and expressed his concern with fire in his eyes exiled sovereigns are in the habit of expressing concern for their country with fire in their eyes they are also in the habit of regarding their own return to power as the one sole means of relieving the country from its distress the english gentleman who describes this scene represents himself as not to be outdone in patriotism of his own even by the exiled prince i could not disavow much of what he said yet i own i was piqued at it for very often compassionate terms from the mouth of an adverse party are grating it appeared to me so on this occasion therefore i replied it's true sir that our affairs in england lie at present under many hardships by the south seas mismanagement but it is a constant maxim with us protestants to undergo a great deal for the security of our religion which we could not depend upon under a romish government this speech not over polite the prince took in good part and entered upon an argument so skilfully that i am apprehensive i should become half a jacobite if i should continue following these discourses any longer therefore says the writer i will give you my word i will enter no more upon arguments of this kind with him the prince and his visitor were perhaps both playing a part to some extent and the whole discourse was probably a good deal less theatric in style than the english traveller has reported but there can be no doubt that the letter fairly illustrates the spirit in which the leading jacobites watched over the financial troubles in england and the new hopes with which they were inspired hopes destined to be translated into new action before very long nor can it be denied that the speech of the english visitor correctly represented the feeling which was growing stronger day after day in the minds of prudent people at home in england the time was coming had almost come when a political disturbance or a financial panic in these kingdoms was to be accounted sufficient occasion for a change of ministers but not for a revolution End of chapter eleven